The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and uh, welcome to Spirit Matters, where we host conversations with a uh, diverse range of people with expertise of various kinds that uh, will help you as you move along your own spiritual path. That is our purpose, and we stick to it with wise and interesting people. Um, If you're new to the podcast, I uh, invite you to look back at our inventory of previous interviews, you'll find a lot of interesting and uh, useful information. And if uh, you're familiar with Spirit Matters in its previous incarnation as uh, uh, the show I co-hosted for many years, that archive is also available and free at spiritmatterstalk.com. And here we're going to continue with our uh, lineup of interesting guests. Today, we have with us Rizwan Kirk. I'm sorry, did I say Kirk? Rizwan <laughs> Verk, a successful entrepreneur from Silicon Valley, a video game pioneer, a film producer, venture capitalist, computer scientist and author of some interesting books on business and sort of cutting-edge science, such as The Simulation Hypothesis, The Simulated Multiverse, and Zen Entrepreneurship. He's currently affiliated with uh, Arizona State University in several capacities. Uh, And hearing that, you may be thinking, he sounds like an interesting guy, but what is he doing on a show about spirituality? Well, what attracted my attention was his most recent book, which is Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi, which, of course, refers to the iconic memoir by Paramahansa Yogananda, And as regular listeners to this show uh, must probably know, I've written a biography of Yogananda and have taught taught courses on his uh, autobiography. So much of our conversation today will be about Yogananda, who is a key figure in modern spirituality and in the integration of Eastern wisdom into the West. So welcome, Riz. May I call you Riz? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I always begin by asking the guest about his or her own uh, spiritual origin story. Um, So tell us your own spiritual background, what brought you to your interest in Yogananda in particular, spirituality in general, and and the intersection of it with your professional life. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I was born in Pakistan, um, which is 90, 90 some percent uh, Muslim. uh, So was brought up in an Islamic household, uh, although I grew up primarily in the U.S., uh, in the Midwest, in Michigan. 
and you know became yeah, your accent is more michigan than pakistani uh, yeah absolutely <laughs> so you might pretty much say i'm from the midwest i think i moved when i was four years old and just about to start kindergarten so <laughs> um, and uh you know then i ended up going uh to school uh in uh at mit in in, in boston in cambridge and, and lived there for a while and you know became an entrepreneur uh running a software company and during that time, I, I was running what you might call a, a double life or having a double life. Right? During the day, I was an entrepreneur dealing with you know, business people and software, and venture capitalists and investors. And then in the evening and on weekends, I would be exploring different paths of consciousness studies and different traditions. You know, This included uh, Buddhist meditation. This included going off to the Monroe Institute, uh, which is, you know, located down in, I guess it's West Virginia, um, uh, you know, which is about out-of-body experiences. Uh, I was studying the works of Castaneda around lucid dreaming, uh, shamanic dream work. So I was exploring a lot of different uh, avenues. And, and one of my uh, Buddhist teachers assigned uh, reading Autobiography of the Yogi. Um, and I had seen the book in the bookstore, uh, you know, when I was in high school even, uh, and I just remember thinking, who's this strange Hindu guy with long hair? And, you know, growing up in a, in a Muslim family, it was like, oh yeah, you know, you, you shouldn't read that Hindu stuff. You can do yoga, but don't, don't like read that Hindu philosophy <laughs> stuff. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I became intrigued. And even while I was at MIT, we had to take, you know, which is known for, you know, science, technology, engineering, and, and kind of being meant, being mental all the time we had a, a physical education requirement and I ended up taking different yoga classes pretty much ah. during that entire time. Uh, Kundalini yoga, Hatha yoga were, were the two really that were offered and, and got to know, uh, had some mentors in, in the, there as well. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I went along in, in my spiritual journey uh, and the autobiography was uh, hugely influential on me and inspirational. And I remembered some of these stories. Right. And I think, you know, that's, kind of the, the the main purpose of that book is to inspire people on on their own spiritual journeys um and uh, you know at the time the, the teacher that I recommended it to me was you know more of a buddhist meditation teacher coming you know from the zen and other traditions uh and, and yet you know it made an impact on on pretty much everybody that, that he had recommended it to and so I reread it every few years you know not unlike Steve Jobs who who read it every year as your your listeners will will know um and uh then a number of years ago, uh, I ended up uh, writing a book called The Simulation Hypothesis, where which was about this idea that we live inside a video game. Uh, and for me, it was a way to bring together uh, the different threads of my life. Like the people that I spend time with in Silicon Valley are interested in this idea that we might live inside the computer simulation. The academics and scientists were interested, but also when I looked at the different mystical traditions, whether it's the Islamic Sufi traditions, whether it's the Hindu, the Buddhist traditions, uh, et cetera, that, you know, there is an element of the simulation theory that ties to religious ideas that the world is not the physical, the physical world is not the real world. And so it really let me bring together, you know, all of these different areas uh, and, and folks that I had been spending time with. I'd also been investigating UFOs and spending time at <laughs> UFO conferences. And, and pretty much all of them could could use this common metaphor. Um, and it was a, a few years ago after I had had some health issues where I was sitting on the couch for a month or two, wasn't able to do much. And I decided to reread Autobiography of a Yogi, which is something I do, like I said, every few years. And I decided to write some uh, a few articles about uh, Yogananda's book, what it meant to me, but also, you know, other books like it, because, uh, you know, I was like sitting there and didn't have much to do and, and had, didn't have a lot of energy while I was recovering. And so, uh, you know, I, I did that and I was never intending to write a book about Yogananda, although I had quoted him quite a bit in my simulation hypothesis book, yeah. uh, particularly around the world being like a dream. And we can talk more about yeah, that. Yeah, I want to come back to that. Yeah. And, and so what happened was uh, in 2021, which was the 75th anniversary uh, of the, uh, uh, the publishing of Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, I was contacted uh, by HarperCollins India. Uh, and they said, we'd like to write a, a book about the lessons from Autobiography of a Yogi and uh, particularly with a bent towards modern seekers. And I, and I said, are you sure you want me to write this book? You know, first of all, I'm not technically a Hindu. 
I'm a Muslim, uh, even though I've still, you know, I'm a huge fan of Yogananda and I'm a businessman, entrepreneur. There's no Swami in front of my name. They said, no, no, we want it to be for, for modern seekers who are familiar with video games and social media and technology. And we think you're, you know, and, and business uh, and entrepreneurship, which is huge in India. So we, yeah. we'd like you to write it. And so that was, you know, one of the lessons in the book is sometimes the universe gives us an invitation, you know, whether we're ready for it or not. And somehow, you know, that's the right invitation for you at that time. And I had this uh, kind of electric feeling in my body that said, oh, this is something I really do need to do, even though it wasn't something that I had been planning on doing. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, in the book, I liken it to, you know, Yogananda's own invitation to come to the U.S., Right to speak at the, the the conference in Boston in 1920. I mean, he wasn't the most qualified Swami. He had rarely <laughs> given talks in public and never had given a talk in English. Right, so you might say he was probably the worst Swami to to come over to America. And yet, that was you know the task and the life mission that was given to him, and he accepted it. And so, in a similar, much smaller way, this was a task that that had been given to me. And so that's how I I came to write this book. Okay, I want to go back to some of the things you said. I was going to ask you a question, but you kind of um, alluded to it. Um, growing up, well, being born in Pakistan, which obviously, as you said, is you know almost exclusively. Uh, I mean, it was established as a Muslim nation, and you know during the tragedy of partition in, in the 40s. And um, then came here, and but you were from a Muslim household. And so in your seeking, which was so eclectic and so American, <laughs> uh, right. uh, I was going to ask if the Sufi tradition within Islam was something that you explored um and and you alluded to it but i'm curious to to know you know to what extent that uh, that you were drawn to it because of of islamic roots and and if that's part of your uh current orientation at all well that that's an interesting point because you know I, as i mentioned like when i was younger you know my my dad would always say who just passed on recently uh, but, you know, he would always say, well, we have, you know, mystical traditions in Islam, too. We have the Sufi right. tradition. And and he would, you know, encourage me to explore it. But uh, I think, you know, in, in the same vein that a lot of, uh, you know, Yogananda was so, and you, your listeners know this, though, a lot of times when I'm speaking on podcasts, they don't necessarily know. Yogananda's book was such a huge influence on the 60s and 70s. And in that generation and the counterculture, like, my you know, they, generation, yeah, right, right, that generation, <laughs> your generation, and then that generation was, you know, they were the mentors for my generation because I'm Gen X, and so of course we we heard all about how great this book was, and you know certain other authors as well. But today's generation doesn't necessarily get that same exposure. I found, but I was going to say in the same way that in the counterculture, a lot of Americans looked eastward, right? They right. looked away from right. the Christian tradition that they had been brought up with. Uh, you know, in the same way, I was looking away from my tradition for most of my spiritual seeking. And I would say within the last, you know, few years or within the last decade or so, I have started to explore more seriously, you know, the overlap between these traditions. And, you know, in fact, I was in, uh, in 2008, I, I went, was my last trip to Pakistan. Uh, my brother had moved back and gotten married. Uh, otherwise, you know, my family's pretty much here at this point in the U.S., uh, so I don't always have a reason to go back. Um, mm. But I went and visited the site of Kitas, uh, which is in um, uh, the, it's in the Great Salt Range, which is, you know, within kind of like northern Punjab, like north of Islamabad. And there was a site there, and they kept telling me there were these Buddhist caves. And I said, oh, I'd like to see those. There was um, what? These Buddhist caves. Oh. Where the Buddha, and, and so this site was really intriguing to me because it had actually an ancient Hindu temple uh, and with um, a lake that was said to be a teardrop from one of the gods. I, mm -hmm, I forget mm -hmm. exactly the story, but it's mentioned in the Mahabharata and the lake supposedly, you know, had healing powers. And the temple is still there and it's very ornate and you can oh. see, you know, this temple. And then you look off to the side and then there are these very simple kind of brick rock-like structures. And they said, yeah, those are the Buddhist monasteries. They just they just built them so simply. Uh, and then over there are the caves. 
where people meditated. And of course, that you know, they, they said it in uh, the guy who was the tour guide said it in these were the mysterious, you know, mind powers of the Hindus. You know, it was said in kind of like, <laughs> like if you read like the old Orientalist books, <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, from the U.S., it was like that kind of a who look at this scary, you know, type thing. And then turns out there was a there was a great Islamic university that was built on that same site. Uh-huh. where they did a lot of astronomical observations. And so it really clued me into kind of the interrelatedness within this land. I mean, it was all India, right? Uh, right. Which, you know, back in the day and 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 how these religions also influenced each other. Yeah. And so, you yeah. know, more recently, I, I have uh, I have gotten more involved in exploring the Sufi traditions. This summer, I went to uh, the University of Birmingham uh, with uh, with an institute. It's an Islamic institute associated with them called the Al Mahdi Institute, and I gave a, a, a talk at uh, a conference on Islamic jurisprudence and the nature of the soul. And my talk huh. was on is- Islam and the simulation hypothesis. Um, and you know, there was it was very well received actually because it showed that what all of the spiritual scriptures do is they speak in metaphors right and, and and these metaphors were appropriate at the time but today's generation would use different metaphors we would use more sophisticated metaphors and so for me this idea that the that the world is not real but it's a type of game that we're playing and then there were there were uh, you know quotes from the quran that i found such as uh, you know this world is but a game it's but a diversion it's but a pastime <laughs> right. that we have created for you Yes, like the Leela, exactly like the Leela, <laughs> the grand play. Uh, and turns out there were, you know, it's uh, it's even to the point of, you know, the world is an enjoyable delusion, right? Oh, oh that's <laughs> So it, it ties right back to the idea of Maya being not just an illusion, but yeah. like a carefully crafted illusion, right? Uh, and 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 so I think, you know, for me, I found that there was a and this idea of the scroll of deeds, the scroll of deeds in Islam, is where you have two angels, one who writes out uh, all of your good deeds and one who writes out all of your bad deeds. And and then the day of judgment, right? It's just kind of like this big thing within the Judeo-Christian traditions, particularly within Islamic tradition, right? The day of mm. judgment, El-Kiyama, right? It's like a particularly important day. But if you, if you read one of the passages, what it says is, you know, we will lay open your scroll of deeds and you will read it and you will be the reckoner. And so I had to explain, well, that's a metaphor. That doesn't mean there's an angel there with a feather pen right, writing right. in, you know, <laughs> Arabic or Chinese. He went to the store and he did this. But rather, it's a metaphor for a recording of all of your actions. And, and I tied it to this idea of the near-death experience. Hmm. Uh, so people who've had near-death experiences um, have reported a life review. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's what they mm-hmm. call a holographic panoramic mm-hmm. life review, where they replay everything in a three-dimensional way as if they're back in with a virtual reality headset um, there. And then they see it from the other person's point of view. So they see the ripple. And, and in Islamic traditions, there's this idea that it's not just your actions, it's what is the effect of your actions. Right? Mm-hmm. And so today, you know, that's called the life review and the ripple effect. And I said, that is the scroll of deeds. It's the same thing that these ancient religions have been describing. We now have different terminology. We can talk about 3D panoramas. We can talk about virtual reality. We can use these different metaphors. So so that really led me deep into looking at the metaphors used in, in the Islamic traditions in particular. And so now it is a part of uh, you know what I'm studying. My next book uh, on this subject is going to be called God and the Simulation. And it will basically pull passages from the Quran, the Hadith, the Bhagavad Gita, and other spiritual texts from Buddhism and Hinduism and, and, as well, uh, and kind of tie them together using this metaphor. So, so you've become a perennialist. I think so, yes. <laughs> of the, of the uh, other people who hung around in Cambridge, like Houston Smith and uh, and people like that. Um, I, just one other thing about this is what you were saying is very interesting because you you compared your uh, seeking and finding to uh, Americans who uh, reject the the religion of their birth and turn to to the east and um, and I've remarked many times that um, one of the things I've discovered in all my research is is how many people. Uh, 
in their coming of age years reject the religions of their birth for you know the same reason I did and and um and then in discovering the teachings of the east and often specifically yogananda um come to see them in a different way and return to them but from a different perspective seeing jesus in a different way because they learn you know they you know I, that happened to me it's happened to so many people and it sounds like it it's what happened to you in sort of becoming more open to the uh islamic branches of of islam that you were not necessarily aware of early. yeah very much i think that's yeah. the case uh and and i think it's because you know one of the lessons of yogananda's book uh, is that uh, the universality of religions, right? That's I mean, right? I mean, he tried to use this term, the science of religion, yes. right, as a way to say this yoga underlies all the other. And and it's interesting that we're still doing that today. I mean, in my next book, I'm saying simulation theory is a metaphor that cuts across all religions. So we're still looking for ways to tie that together. But when I when I first read Yogananda's book, I was like, why is all this biblical Christian stuff in here? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know a lot and, of Christians who say the same thing. Right. I was looking for a book about somebody from the East, but, right. but of course he wrote it, you know, back in the, the 1930s and 40s. And, and back then, you know, he was tying that bridge. And, and so during during uh, my writing of my book, uh, and, and you probably found this as well, you know, I interviewed people about how they first uh, got encountered Yogananda's book. And, you know, there were, you know, Jewish guys and Christian guys who said, yep, I had rejected, you know, my religion, but right. I, I became, I, I began to have more respect for Christianity after, That's you right. know, reading Autobiography of Yogi and, and becoming part of that, that tradition. So I think that happened for me. Well, and, and I was I think, one of them. I, I was raised by atheists, so I didn't have any religion. I, my uh, unlearning was a different kind. But um, I read the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita before I ever opened a Bible. And uh, when I read Autobiography of a Yogi in 1970, I said, wow, he really likes Jesus. Maybe I'm missing something. And so I read the New Testament for the first time, you know, outside of, you know, hearing Christmas songs growing up you know and <laughs> having presents under my uh, catholic neighbor's tree uh, uh, and so I, when i read the new testament having read yogananda and other vedantic authors um it was a revelation it was like oh my god this guy was like a guru he was like a yogi that was my way of framing it because that was my frame of reference. And so <laughs> I had a very different experience from then on. And so now, you know, uh, we're recording this just uh, 10 days before Christmas. And um, I will be singing Christmas carols as a kind of birthday celebration for a great yogi. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now yeah. I want to ask you, and I will come back to Yogananda, but or you can bring it in um, before we get to the substance of your wisdom of a yogi book. But your previous books, Simulation Hypothesis and the Simulated Multiverse, in just looking at the descriptions of those, my first thought was, oh, he's using a more up-to-date metaphor than you know, when we were, Yogananda and others were using cinema or radio or, you know, whatever was available at that time. So tell us about what what is the simulation hypothesis, the simulated multiverse? Uh, these are uh, new terms for us, but especially for uh, listeners who, um, unlike me, have uh, played video games, uh, you have a, a lot, you know, uh, you find a lot in that. So tell, tell us what the simulation hypothesis is and, and why it's of relevance to our listeners. Sure. Well, you know, I'll tell you a story on, on how I came to write that book. And I, I was an entrepreneur in the video game industry Then I became an investor and I had sold my last video game company. And I was visiting a, 
uh, a startup uh, that was located in Marin County across from San Francisco Bay. And from their building, they had this beautiful view of the San Francisco skyline. But instead of admiring the view, they said, hey, you want to try our new virtual reality game? <laughs> and so, you know, I put on this virtual reality headset, which was big and bulky. This was back in 2016. So what is that? Like I said, almost eight years ago now. Uh, and there were wires from the headset to the ceiling and there was a big open area, but I couldn't see anything outside of, you know, what I saw in the headset. So there was no mistaking that I was, you know, there with a big thing on my face, but I started to play this virtual reality ping pong game. And what happened was that the responsiveness of the game was so realistic that after a while, it felt like I was playing a real game of table tennis so much so that it fooled my, my body for mm. a moment Right? It fooled my body so that at the end of the game, I tried to put the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean against the table. But of course, there was no ping pong table. <laughs> it was all virtual. And so the paddle fell to the floor. I almost tripped over because there was no table. <laughs> and so then I began to think, well, how long will it take us as a technological, you know, computerized civilization to build something with that where that virtual reality would be really indistinguishable from physical reality, right? You would forget that there was another world out there and that this is the world uh, because all your senses would be. And I laid out the 10 stages to what I call the simulation point, which is a type of technological singularity. And basically what I was saying is we can build something like the film, The Matrix, right? So if you you know, your viewers or your listeners have probably all seen the movie, The Matrix, which is probably the, the most popular conception of this idea, mm -hmm. which is that we are uh, inside a computer game. And in The Matrix, if you remember, he was plugged in with a uh, cable into the back of his head. And so we call that a brain computer interface. And that's something that folks are working on now. But, you know, my my conclusion was we can get there within, you know, a certain amount of time. Let's say it takes let's say it takes 100 years, right? Computers haven't been around for 100 years. So in 100 years, how advanced will our computers be? Pretty advanced, right? Uh, and, and then there was a, a professor at Oxford, Nick Bostrom, who uh, back in 2003 basically said that, look, if any technological civilization anywhere can get to this point, then they will create lots of simulations, uh, billions of them, because all you need to do is crank up another server with lots of simulated beings in them. Right? So you have trillions now, right? trillions of simulated beings. And he said, if you are in a world or you are a being, which are you more likely to be, a physical being or a simulated one? And remember, you can't tell the difference <laughs> if you're in a simulated or physical. So statistically speaking, there's a billion of these and one of these, you're more likely to be in one of these, right? <laughs> and so, so that's what got Elon Musk and others to make the statement that the chances that we are in base reality, meaning that we are in the real world, uh, is billions to one. Right. Uh, or one in billions, sorry, which means the chances that we're in a simulation is billions to one, basically. And so so that's the basic idea. And there's different flavors of this idea. There's sort of the matrix version where you're plugged into and playing the game. Then there's what I call the NPC version, which is stands for non-player character. And those are the AI characters inside the game. And so NPCs think that they're real, perhaps because they're intelligent AI characters. Uh, but they only exist within the game, right? That's their, 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 their. Now, the parallels to different religious ideas become clear, right? Particularly in, in the Vedantic and, and the Eastern traditions where, you know, you have a life, you are born into a life, you live the life, you finish it off, you go back and you have some information accumulated of what happened. And then you go and you play another game <laughs> as a different role, right? So you're role playing different characters right and you know there's the 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 old story of uh, narada and sushila right uh where uh the warrior narada says to vishnu i want to understand maya right and, and vishnu says well i i can't explain it to you i have to show it to you he says step into this pool of water he, he steps in the pool of water and suddenly he's baby sushila he's this young you know baby girl and sushila grows up and has an entire life uh, and she gets married her husband is a king and she marries a prince. And then there's this big battle where her husband fights her father. They all die. And she's like really sad. And she steps into this pool of water. And suddenly she's back with Vishnu. And she's Narada, the warrior. And he goes, that is Maya. <laughs> now you understand Maya, right? <laughs> and and there's, a, there's a computerized version of this where you put on a headset. 
there's a there's a TV show called Rick and Morty, uh, which is a uh, comedy. It's a, a comedy, but it's very technological. Where they go into an ar- arcade somewhere in the galaxy, sci-fi. He puts on a headset, and suddenly he's baby Roy. And and Roy, you know, he grows up, goes to school, ha- gets married, has kids. He's 52 years old, and he's you know putting something on a shelf, and he falls over and he dies, and it says, "Game over. You have lived to 52 years old." <laughs> he takes off his headset and he goes, "Well, wait a minute. Where's my wife? Where's my kids? What's going on?" And only 15 minutes have passed, right outside, <laughs> and, and and so that's kind of the video game version of this uh, the story of uh, Narada and Sushila. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. And it's um, there's resonance with the ancient teachings where they make a point about what we think is reality, which is a limited, <laughs> limited uh, view of the ultimate reality, um, and waking up from a dream state where we were immersed in something that we thought was real and then we wake up and we're in the waking state and realize oh that was an illusory reality and the the uh, the experience of what is called enlightenment or realization that was a metaphor now you have more you know different metaphors at your disposal essentially is that i mean is that what i'm hearing yeah. And, and, you know, I often make the point that, you know, Yogananda, and, and I got this partly from reading your book as well, right? <laughs> Yogananda was a bit of a reformer, right? Yes. And sometimes the traditionalists were, did, you know, weren't happy with him, but he updated the metaphors, right? right. And, and, you know, there was this great story in the autobiography where he saw the newsreels of World War One, and that was, you know, the destruction uh, that happened during that war. There, there was a reason they called it the Great War, right? People hadn't been killed on such a scale with mechanized, uh, you know, uh, artillery and guns. Uh, And he said, Lord, how can you allow this? And he very clearly got this message that look again, right? What you are seeing is like a film within a film and that the the actors don't die. And so what you think is reality isn't is just like a film. And so, you know, he he used to use this metaphor quite a bit. Uh, and he updated it and he would even tell his students, look away from the screen, look at the right. light of the projector. Right? And there's even right. video of him out there, you know, saying, yeah. look at the projector. So, and, and so, so Plato like, had to use the shadows in the cave. That's Yogananda right. got to use cinema. Right. And now you get to use the, video games. And so because I think if Yogananda <laughs> were alive today, and this is where the leak comes from, I think he would say it's like a movie but we're all the actors we have scripts but we can change the scripts That's we're right. also the audience <laughs> and so right. what is he describing it's an interactive massively multiplayer role-playing game right that would be what he so i think if he were alive today he would he would do exactly what he did in the 20th century he would use the latest metaphor that's right and and describe. and as i you know wrote about in american veda yogananda's metaphors were from the 20s through the 40s, the gurus who came in the 60s and 70s were already using images like instead of airplanes, they were rocket ships. And instead of um, you know radio, they were video recordings. And <laughs> so they it's you know updating the metaphors and updating the 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 skillful means of conveying certain uh you know eternal ideas in the language of of its era so i remember when the matrix came out and i felt like you know i'm i'm old i don't get it what are they talking <laughs> about you know why did people seeing these you know messages in here um 
and I, you know, I never played video games, but now, you know, this whole generations of people who grew up with them the way I grew up with throwing a ball against the wall. And, <laughs> and, you know, they take to these metaphors more easily. So when I hear people talking about this, and I've heard stuff from coming out of, you know, scientists, mouths and, and uh, the keyboards, um, if we, how, how far do we take the metaphor? Video games were created by people like you, and the simulation is controlled by human beings. So in a, a metaphor of Maya and, you know, the, it, uh, the ultimate reality as opposed to the uh, limited reality that we perceive through the senses and so forth, Where's the who? What is the simulator in the simulation? Do yeah. do you see it because of your spiritual orientation differently from how other people using this uh, simulation kind of uh, metaphor? Do you see it differently than the others? Well, yeah, I think you know different people see it differently, and and because of my as you said, because of my spiritual bent. I tend to go towards the RPG version of the simulation, right? Which is that we are we are outside the simulation, whether it's us as spiritual beings or physical beings, you know, you can leave that up for interpretation. Uh, but, you know, as a computer scientist, the way I like to talk about it is that the universe actually consists of information, mm. right? And that information gets rendered for us. And, and that's why there's, there's a big part of, of my simulation book about quantum physics, and, you know, the physicists keep looking for this thing called matter and they can't find it, right? They can't right, find right. the matter. All they can find, there's a physicist uh, named John Wheeler who was in uh, one of the giants in 20th century physics. He, worked, he was across the hall from Einstein at Princeton. And, you know, he came up with this phrase, it from bit. And when he said, what is it? It, I-T, from bit. He ah. said, if there's something that's an it, like say this coffee cup, we think it's an it because it's real. It's a particle, but it's really not. If you look for it, for it all you're going to find at the bottom level, like if you, the Russian dolls, you know, the, the Matryoshka yeah. dolls or whatever they're called, you, you open them up. At the bottom level, it's a series of answers to yes, no questions, which is just bits of information. And that uh -huh. is what a particle is. A particle, you can define one particle versus another only by their, you know, answers to these questions. And so the universe really is information. Now, there's different interpretations of the simulation hypothesis one where everybody is an npc where you are ai running in a simulation uh but still from that perspective you know uh, there was a, a british philosopher named uh, david pierce who said that the simulation argument he was talking about bostrom nick bostrom from oxford his original simulation argument is probably the most interesting uh argument for the presence of a creator in 2000 years right uh. <laughs> because because from the perspective of even atheists would have to say, well, okay, if we're just inside a simulation, then right. anybody that's outside is going to look to us like it's supernatural, right? right. They're going to look like creators, angels, demons. So maybe, maybe you know, we should be agnostic at the very least. And so that's why it's a powerful metaphor. Yeah, but interesting. It comes in, but, but there's a physical, like ontological aspect to it as well. I mean, the, the scriptural traditions are not just telling us these metaphors for metaphor's sake, they're telling us because it's very hard to describe what reality actually is, right? Right. It, and and ineffable. but they're also telling us that the ultimate reality can be experienced. Yes, that's a good point. And, and it, it transcends right. knowing about something and it's knowingness itself. And and that um I was I was thinking when you were talking about the the universe being information. Um, how similar that is to uh, Satchit Ananda, that that the that consciousness is built into the substance of the universe. Wow. Yeah. Well, that is interesting, and, and I yeah. do like that metaphor. And and you know, for me, information is the essence of how the simulation gets created. Right. If we think of the the metaphorical lords of karma, right? Who are creating these situations, the seeds, right? The seeds are turning into situations. 
where is that information stored? Mm. It's just like in a video game, you store all of the quests separate from what you see in the rendered world, and then you pick and choose. Some part of you, the player, says, yes, I accept this quest, you know, but in the real life quests might be, you know, and 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 I like to think of it, this database gets filled. And there's a great story in, in, in Autobiography of a Yogi that I like to use as a metaphor. But one of the questions that people always ask me is how real are these stories of the, yeah, of the miracles? Of course. You know, one of the stories I really like is because, well, it's really a story about karma more than it is about miracles, is about uh, Yogananda's guru's guru, Lahiri, who goes to the mountains and meets his guru, the seemingly immortal Babaji. And as part of it, you know, first Babaji says, Lahiri, you have come. And he's like, I right. don't remember you at all. Because don't you remember you used to meditate in this right. game right here in your right. previous life? I've been watching you for 30 years. And then he gives them, you know, some some oil and he remembers his past life. And he says, now we're going to initiate you into Kriya Yoga. And he creates this giant palace yes. in the Himalayas. Yes. And, 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 and this is where people accuse Yogananda of basically stealing stories from the Arabian Nights. Oh. Right? If you read the original Aladdin story, and I talk about genies and jinn in, oh, oh. in the context of a few different stories from the autobiography, you know, the genie creates this giant elaborate golden palace for, oh. for Aladdin. Like the original story, there were actually two genies and, and one of them does this. But, but the whole point was, you know, Lahiri gets initiated in this palace and then the palace disappears. And so, you know, I think Yogananda's point was twofold. You know, one was, how, why did he create this palace? And he, and he says, Lahiri, in a previous life, you expressed a desire to live in a palace. And therefore, we have now resolved that karma for you. Right. right? And, and so it was really a story about even desires create karma that then it gets stored in this database. But it also gets to Yogananda's point about miracles, right? He has a whole chapter on the law of miracles in the autobiography, which is that it's all about light. And so, you know, Babaji even says, this is a dream castle that our green palace I've created for you. So if it's all light particles, it's all illusion anyway, then it's easy to create. You know, uh, you can use the same rendering, just like in a video game, you can easily render, <laughs> you know, you can render a castle wherever you want. That's all part of the process of drawing the pixels, as long as you know how the pixels are drawn and, and how they're created. So, Thanks for bringing us back to uh, our purpose here, which is to help people on their spiritual path and um, to talk about your, your Wisdom of a Yogi book. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the abundance of miracles and wonders in that book. Because, you know, I, I've read it now, I, you know, I can't count how many times because I have to teach about it. And every time I read it, this one of the things that comes up and one of the things that came up when I was doing my research was um, I always joke that there are two kind of people who... Uh, value autobiography of a yogi people who who read about read all those miracles and wonders and that's what really turns them on and people who hate all that stuff and think it's all bull but love other aspects of the book anyway and um what's your take i'll tell you and i'll i'll tell you how uh, i came to answer this question what is your take on why so much of that book, which is called an autobiography, but is really more about other people than himself, and um, how much of it is about miracles and super what we think of as supernormal powers and powers of consciousness that the great you know advanced yogis can do? What was the purpose of that? Well, you know, I, I will say uh, a couple of things. So first, when I read Autobiography Yogi the first time, I remembered the stories of the miracles, right? right. Uh, mostly. I mean, I remembered some other stories. He was running away from home to go to the Himalayas. Those were very memorable, right? But mostly, if you had asked me, okay, what do you remember from Autobiography of Yogi a few years after having read it, I would have said, I remember the guy who controlled the genie that made objects appear and disappear, <laughs> right? Hazrat, right. Uh, you know, was, and it was a, because it was a Muslim fakir who who gained, used this yoga technique to gain control of this, this other entity, which I, I later interpret as a genie or a jinn from the Islamic traditions. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, the bilocation, the levitating saints. 
And so, you know, my take on it is both. Uh, my take on it is that first, Yogananda included these as part of a sales pitch, right? Because, you know, part of his mission was to bridge the gap between East or West. Mm-hmm. And it was very different back then. And obviously, you know, you wrote the biographies, you know more about this even than I do. But, you know, he had to interest a primarily Christian nation and show that yoga, which was perceived as kind of this weird, you know, Eastern Hindu thing, was not a weird love cult or anything like that, but that it was a not just a religion, but it was a series of techniques uh, about where that was on par, not just with Christianity, but with science itself, right? right? So there are these two dominant ideas in the West, science and, you know, uh, Christianity from the religious perspective. Uh, and they were, you know, pretty dominant during those years, if you think of the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and so he was using it as a way to uh, leverage to get people interested in yoga and to get them to take the first steps in the spiritual journey. That said, I also believe that many of those miracles did actually happen and he did witness them. And, you know, he goes through great lengths many times to show the provenance of a particular miracle. Uh, and, you know, this story of the of uh, Afzal Khan and Hazrat, the Fakir and the genie, you know, he, he says it happened to his guru, Sri Yukteswar, right in the same dormitory where Yogananda was staying. I mean, he went through a lot of pains. And then he talks about a newspaper in Bengal that printed, uh, you know, the Fakir's uh, apology and, and, and how he had been using these spiritual powers. For, so now that was a story about karma. Okay? That's so right, exactly. There was a lesson about karma in that. And it wasn't just, I think, the lesson that you shouldn't misuse your spiritual powers. Like that's the obvious lesson. And a lot of the stories that Yogananda told, I feel like there's an obvious lesson and there's an underlying lesson. And the lesson of karma here is that, is that when the, 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 the Fakir learned this technique, he was told by the yogi that taught him the technique, he said, you have a tendency from past lives to be avaricious, to be mm-hmm. greedy, and therefore don't misuse these powers. Now, imagine if you were going to create a test for somebody a karmic test <laughs> who had a tendency to be greedy, what would you do? You would give them some magical powers, <laughs> right? And and then you would basically let them get anything they wanted and see if they abused it. And so in a sense, it was it was both a, a story that may have been true. And, and I can talk a little more about, uh, I went to investigate, are there other stories like this that are credible? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it was also a story teaching a lesson. So I believe he did both. Uh, in, in many of these stories. Yeah, you know? I agree. And when I was researching, not American Veda, but my biography of Yogananda, I spent a lot of time with the leaders of his organ of self-realization fellowship. And one day I was talking to uh, the Swami, who now is the head of the whole thing, but at the time was just a senior monastic and my liaison to the archives and stuff. And I asked him, I said, why why do you think Yogananda, you know, filled the book with so much about these miracles and these stories? And he said, and he opened, he said, look at look at this page. And it's the page in a book that you usually just turn past. It's what's called the title page. Uh, not the copyright page, but the title page. And I I must have turned that page hundreds of times, but I was looking at it, and it says autobiography of Yogin, the author's name, publisher's name, and all that. But it has something most title pages don't, a quote. And it's from the New Testament from the New Testament. It says, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. So he tells you right at the beginning why he's doing it and we just all skip over it that's great yeah i'll have to look at uh, my copy here and look at the title page and you're right there it is yep right there it is i know (laughs) it was hysterical yeah that's a great um, great point let's come back to the practical lessons that you derive in in your book from autobiography of a yogi and one of the things that i always talk about when I talk about him and and the book is well actually when I when I mostly when I talk about his life, which was that um you 
and I was happy to see this, you recognized that whatever his spiritual stature may have been, he was a human being. And as we all are, we're, you know, this may be a game and we're players on in the film and all that, but we're human and therefore uh, we have human traits no matter what our spiritual status might, might be. Um, and that meant he had struggles and setbacks and challenges like all humans do. And ardent devotees often don't want to look at that stuff and they they want to think everything was perfect because he was a saint and blah, blah, blah. But we both know that he had his struggles and all that. And you make a point of that in there. So I'd like you to elaborate on on that and the importance of of us, you know, deriving life lessons from that kind of example. Yeah, I think that's important, you know, as you said. And, and people who read the autobiography and you know, and the point has been made often that most of that book takes place in India, and yet most of his adult life was That's spent right. in in America, right? So he leaves out a lot of uh, you know, right. his adult which is life. why I, I wrote my book. That's right. I think your book is a great way to fill in those <laughs> gaps. And that's, you know, that's right. one of the ways that I learned about those was right. from you. Uh, and there's also the documentary Awake, um, that's right. which was made uh, that talks about that as well. And, you know, one of, so what I've tried to do is distill a number of lessons, you know, from the autobiography, sometimes taking them from different lessons uh, down to 14 kind of practical lessons, uh, you know, for, uh, for individuals in the modern age from Yogananda's life. And the first of those was, you know, you don't have to go to the Himalayas, yes. right? So if you read the autobiography, he's constantly, you know, Mukunda was constantly trying to run away <laughs> to go to the Himalayas. And, and, and of course, your listeners will have read these stories, you know, including the chase across Northern India on the, uh, on the railway system <laughs> when he runs away with his two. Oh, and, but there are instances that he doesn't even write about in autobiography of Yogi. He wanted to get there. So even when he was a young adult, he still hadn't gone. Right. And right. he defies his gurus and, you know, yeah. he still yeah. wants to go to Kashmir. And yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, when some of those stories that, you know, there's clear lessons in there, like where his guru tells him his, his, his last attempt to run away where he meets the sleepless saint, uh, Ram Gopal Muzumdar. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he says, mountains cannot be your guru, right? right. Uh, that, you know, many, many Bushmen live in the Himalayas, but they don't have God realization. And, you know, for, for Yogananda, what happened was he found his guru as someone who lived only 12 miles from you right. know, Calcutta, uh, instead of even not in the holy city of Benares, even though that's where he found him. That's where he met him. Yeah. He lived there. And, and turns out this is, you know, this is still true today. Right. We think we have to run off to the Himalayas and, and particularly, you know, in, in the, the, the kind of boomer generation, you know, Steve Jobs famously went to India to right. try to find Neem Karoli Baba, who he had been told was this guru you know, right. from Ram Dass's guru. But in, in the end, what he primarily did was he read Autobiography of Yogi and then he came back here. And, and as I interviewed people, I found that was often the case yeah. that we think we have to go somewhere else. But oftentimes, you know, and, and Yogananda's guru was a brother disciple to his parents, right? Right. Uh, as a disciple of Lahiri, he again thought he had to run away to, to find, you know, his spiritual path. And, and I think we find it. But but one of the most important lessons and the one that you asked me about was that sometimes setbacks are part of our path. Right. You know, uh, um, and, and, I, and, and this happened with Yogananda many times where he had a number of setbacks. And you go into a lot of detail in these in your book, you know, with the different lawsuits and, you know, the, the whole... A situation with Swami Dirananda, who was his number two guy. He had brought him over. Uh, and then the husband that came and bopped him on the nose <laughs> because he Bob thought Dirananda. He, Dirananda on the nose because he thought, you know, his wife was in this yeah, dark room yeah. chanting. And then you had all the, the articles about, you know, Hindus love cult. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and Yogananda couldn't speak in Miami because all of the, yeah. uh, all of the, uh, you know, all of the husbands of the, the irate husbands. Dead. Well, yeah. he, there was also racism involved with that, so yes. we have to name that as well. Yeah, absolutely. But but for me, the whole story of Dirananda and what happened when he left the organization, and and in fact, Yogananda having to refocus 
you know, his life's work, his life's mission. I mean, he he had spent, what, a decade at that point, more than a decade, crisscrossing the country. I, I like to say, you know, Yogananda always thought he would be a wandering monk in the Himalayas. Right? <laughs> he, became a, he became a wandering monk. In fact, he probably wandered more miles than any monks in Samara. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? he, he, if they were frequent rail travel miles he would have (laughs) he was crisscrossing the country by train many many times right but he became a wandering monk in america right right in america but but even that sense of his organization potentially falling apart and going and and you know uh, the story of him going to mexico and Mm -hmm. meditating and actually wanting to return to india right uh saying you know this is too hard like lord let me go meditate back in india where I'm comfortable. And yet, yet he didn't, right? That was his life mission. And somehow I, I think sometimes these setbacks help to put us onto a path. So Yogananda wrote in one of his letters that, you know, the, the season of, of setbacks, you know, sow the seeds of success, Some, something like that, he said in one of his letters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really, really important point. Uh, and, you know, his, his guru's guru, Lahiri, you know, said that though man's capacity for getting into trouble is pretty much infinite, <laughs> so is his ability to, to connect and get soul guidance uh, to go from there. Um, and now and- you, you as an entrepreneur, and you've you wrote books about being about entrepreneurship, you no doubt learned similar lessons independent of spirituality about the lives of entrepreneurs and creative people that very often say that the setback was the most important uh, moment in their lives because it catalyzed learning and growth and uh, future success. And it's true spiritually as well as materially, I would think. It is. And, and and I tell a very personal story. In fact, in this book is the first time I tell this story. But before I do, if I can make a brief detour and tell please. the story of the Tiger Swami. Yeah, Because please. it relates to my own. Yeah. And so, you know, Yogananda has this very memorable chapter. And I would always ask people, what's the most memorable chapter from the autobiography? And there were a couple that came up, but one of them that came up most often was probably the Tiger Swami. Really? Right? And, and because it's such a colorful story. And it was this yeah. this Swami who, when he was younger had this desire to fight tigers and he trained himself. He was kind of a frail young man, but he trained himself not just physically, but mentally to fight these Bengal tigers. I mean, anyone who's seen one of these knows this is not a, something that you do lightly. Right. And he gave, he gained fame and fortune for doing it. And then he was told by a Swami through his father that he's accumulating bad karma by knocking out these beasts and that he should stop it. You know, bad karma in the animal kingdom. And of course, what does he do rather than stopping it? He goes to the province of Kuch Bahar and the prince says, I have this particularly ferocious tiger, Raja Begum. And and if you fight this tiger and you win, I'll shower you with riches. And of course he agrees because he's like, hey, well, why not? And, you know, it's it's the toughest fight he's ever had in his life. And in fact, the ti- he wins the fight against the tiger, but he gets mauled. Literally his body loses so much blood that he spends the next six months just recovering. And then after that, he has no desire to fight tigers anymore. He seeks out the Swami and he starts to fight. You know, the the the, the, the obvious lesson was in the story was uh, fight your inner tigers right. of ignorance, etc. And he becomes Sohong's Swami. He becomes the Tiger Swami and we know about him today. But I like to make the point that this story is about outer tigers and inner tigers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we fight our outer tigers because that is part of our karma too, right? I mean, any person who feels so compelled to go and train themselves to fight tigers <laughs> must have some karmic element to that. It's not a normal thing. I'm sure that his brothers and sisters <laughs> didn't want to go and fight tigers, right? It's a very individual. So he spent his time fighting his outer tigers, but at some point his karma should have shifted to fighting his, and he didn't, and he got mauled and it took him six to nine months to recover. Well, you know, what happened to me before writing this book was I was an entrepreneur. I was kind of at the height of my entrepreneurial and investor career. I went back to MIT. I was running a startup program there. And I decided, well, the next thing is to be a venture capitalist and raise a billion dollar fund and do all these things. And, uh, you know, I ended up having a a huge personal setback. I ended up needing to have heart surgery. Um, And, you know, right before I was supposed to make this big presentation at MIT. And if if you've seen anybody get heart surgery, I mean, they literally open you. It's about the biggest, you know, 
uh, mauling you can do of the body. <laughs> it's done within the hospital, but and yeah, you know yeah. when you get out, it it the body is very frail. And and it, I literally felt like I had been mauled, and it took me six to nine months where I literally couldn't do anything else. And during that time, I got very clear messages. I got very that part of my life's plan had been to also be a writer. And in fact, if you had asked me back in high school, I would have said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and then I'm going to be a writer. Now, how did I know that? Well, you know, I think we have these karmic scripts, right? We can still make choices of when we do different things. I thought that I was going to, just like Yogananda thought he was going to be a wandering Swami in the Himalayas, I thought I was going to be a writer at the age of 28. Mm. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't until this happened at the age of 48. So it was like two decades later. Uh, and during that time, the only thing I could really do was I, I was able to get in, you know, an Uber and go to Starbucks and, and, and write. And there were all these books that I had wanted to write. And within nine months, I published two books, including my best-selling book, which is The Simulation Hypothesis, when in the past nine years, I had only written two books over, over the past nine years. And so for me, it was a course correction in a way, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's the, the lesson was that there was a part of my life purpose, my my inner tigers if you will i was spending all my time fighting the outer tigers in the business world and going off and fighting those those battles but in fact it was time for me to shift right it was like your karma in that that part of the world has you know is done you don't need to keep doing it you don't need to fight the next tiger uh instead you should focus in on this and and so for me you know yogananda's story was actually an inspiration as well that his setback led him perhaps indirectly Right to writing the autobiography of a yogi, but mm-hmm. it was a different way to get his message out there, way more, you know, than than traveling. And and I went to Encinitas during uh, the writing of this book mm-hmm. uh, on a. And so another message, another lesson in the book is go on little and big pilgrimages. You know, Yogananda seemed to always go on these pilgrimages to these temples or different locations. And and so during the writing of this book, I was things were kind of stalling a little bit. Uh, and I said, okay, well, I need some inspiration. So I decided to go to Encinitas, the hermitage where he he wrote, uh, you know, most of the autobiography of the yogi. But the problem was it was during co- smack dead in the middle of COVID. Uh, and they had closed it off to visitors. Yeah. Um, and I was able to contact the Self-Realization Fellowship um, and, uh, you know, through the person actually that you introduced me to <laughs> early on. And, and and she, they were able to set up a private visit for me. So I was able to go in and spend mm-hmm. as much time as I wanted uh, in his office you know, which overlooks the Pacific Ocean. I had a very strong vision while I was there um, uh, that actually helped me in writing this book. And I saw a vision of Yogananda. And, you know, it's very calming there, especially if they open like the, the French doors, you can hear the Pacific Ocean. It's on, mm-hmm. it's on, uh, there's a cliff overlooking what's now formally called Swami's Swami Beach. Beach. <laughs> Swami's Beach, yeah. Just because he <laughs> used to walk around there. And I had this vision of him there looking a little mischievous, you know, uh, right while I was standing and kind of had my eyes closed in the office and he had a stack of papers in his hand. Like, and of course, that's how they did manuscripts back then, right? They didn't right. have computers. And so if you lost that manuscript, that's it. And he kind of looked at me mischievously and he he, he, he took the stack of papers and he tossed them out over the, uh, you know, <laughs> over the, and I was horrified as a writer. That was like, for me, the worst thing you could possibly do is, to, and, and then what he do, he was kind of smiling though. And what happened was each of the birds, Turn each of the pages turned into little white birds uh-huh, and cool. they kind of flew off to all different parts of the world. And he said, do you see, this is why it's important to put down your words and to, and to finish these works because those are the, the birds that will carry your messages. And then the second message was don't take it so seriously, uh, <laughs> this task. And I, and I said, you know what, the, the stories that I liked in the, in the autobiography were the miracle stories. So I just started writing about those. And then the whole book just flowed from there very easily and the um, third the third message was make sure you back up your work <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a really important message as well right <laughs> yes <laughs> riz it's been great fun to talk to you there's a lot more uh in your book that we uh didn't get to but we'll leave that to the listeners to uh pick up on wisdom of a yogi a great companion for my biography of uh, Yogananda, the, the life of Yogananda, and the wisdom of a yogi, and of course the uh, the original autobiography of a yogi. Uh, check out listeners. Check out uh, Riz online, and uh, if you're so inclined, uh, look at the simulation hypothesis and the simulated multiverse. 
as well as wisdom of a yogi. And um, listeners, thanks for being with us. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Tell your friends about it. Uh, go to my website, philipgoldberg.com. Get on my mailing list. Uh, email me if you have suggestions for how we can do this better or people you think I should interview. And um, we'll see you next time. Riz, thank you very much for all the good work you do and for being with us. Well, thanks so much for uh, having me on the podcast and for your help in, in helping me write this book. It was my pleasure. Thanks for saying nice things about mine and yours. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Bye, everybody. See you next time. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw. And on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.